0: Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Anthro Alert Podcast, where we take our live show from USF World Radio and publish it for you as a podcast for you to listen to at your convenience. So whether you're sitting at home, driving in a car, or you've somehow stumbled upon this and you don't know where you're at, you're gonna to listen to Anthro Alert, and it's about anthropology and it's super cool, so I hope you enjoy it. Hey Bulls, you're listening to WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 a.m. on campus and streaming worldwide at TuneIn.com and on the TuneIn Radio app. Uh, You're listening to Bulls Radio, you know, learn more, learn more about us at BullsRadio.org. Today, for the three o'clock hour, you're in for a treat because you're listening to Anthro Alert. And this show is about anthropology and why it matters. So each week we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant and over time we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss their research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. So we believe this is a good opportunity for us anthropologists to better connect with the USF community and raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. We like to preface each of our shows with the disclaimer. That the statements we make and the opinions we express on AnthroAlert are our own and may not necessarily be representative of anthropology as a discipline, the USF Anthropology Department, the University of South Florida, student government, or lemurs. <laughs> so my name is Rene Herrera. I am co-host uh, here today with AnthroAlert. Uh, and of course, we have always... Uh, Spencer's here. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Uh, and today, so we have on the show... Dr. Robert Tycott, who is professor of archaeology here at University of South Florida, his research emphasizes scientific analysis of archaeological materials such as obsidian, pottery, metals, etc. in order to study topics such as trade and technology in the Mediterranean and diet and mobility in uh, of skeletal remains. Uh, so good afternoon, Dr. Tycott.
1: Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. So let's just um, let's hop into some questions, Janae what do you think think that's good yes all right um, so dr. Tycott just uh, to get things started here um, I know you've been doing research for several years uh, in Western Europe specifically in in southeastern Italy um, around um, early Neolithic sites <coughs> within that country, uh, using some techniques like surveying and remote sensing. Can you explain a little bit about those particular techniques, and then um, how are you using them to, to look at these sites and, and to answer some of your research questions?
2: Uh, sure. Let me even start off with a little more basic kinds of things here. Archaeology, mm-hmm. of course, is the study of the past based on their material remains. So we find archaeological sites, ancient sites, where they still have architecture above ground but in general when we go back to the earliest time periods uh, they didn't make architecture and things out of stone, but what we find are things like broken pieces of ceramics or pottery, stone tools and the other trash uh, that they left behind. And I've been working on one of these materials, the obsidian for quite a long time. I was introduced to this by my undergraduate professor at Tufts University, uh, and this really got me going combining the scientific methods with the archaeological questions, Mm -hmm. and that's because obsidian, it's a special kind of volcanic rock. It's like glass, so it's very, very sharp and there's only certain volcanic sources anywhere in the world and some of those are on mediterranean islands and so she got me going specifically on the island of sardinia and i have uh, one of those major sources and i've expanded on that considerably mm. and the w- one major source is the small island of lippery which is between sicily and mainland uh, uh... italy the southeastern part uh... and uh... So what got me going is to see whether there was also other sources of obsidian being used coming from greater distances away. Uh, And we do a chemical approach here that is looking at the trace elements, the minor components that are in the obsidian to kind of fingerprint it and match it up with geological sources. So we have methods now uh, that have come out just in the last 10 years uh, where we can go and do this chemical analysis non-destructively. And that's really been the big thing. I bring the small handheld machine with me to museums and collections in different parts of Italy and nearby countries and can go and analyze literally thousands of these artifacts. So we can look uh, from what was coming from different sites and different time periods. Obsidian was used for several thousand years. Mm-hmm. So we can statistically go and see what kinds of differences Uh, there was and use this to tell us more about what the people were actively doing and this is really what we're after is what was the life of people like seven eight thousand years ago when they first started having agriculture domesticated sheep goat cattle pig uh, and plants, wheat and barley, these are the first time anywhere in Western Europe uh, that they had agriculture, so they started uh, doing this kind of farming and so on, also making the cheese and, and you know, milk from some of these animals, uh, but they started living in the same place year-round. Before that, they were hunter-gatherers in much smaller populations. So one thing about the obsidian is it's very sharp, so it was something that was definitely being used for harvesting the plants, cutting up the meat, uh, all kinds of preparation. Mm -hmm. And they definitely had somewhat complex economic arrangements where they were obtaining obsidian and other rarer kinds of materials from hundreds of miles away. And of course, they were doing this without airplanes uh, uh, and uh, 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 so on. So right.
1: Uh, so, um, what what types of other um, other materials were um, these communities using, or what kind of other materials are you finding at the sites?
2: Okay, uh, pottery is the second best preserved material in the archaeological record after stone materials, mm-hmm. uh, but they didn't start using pottery uh, until this Neolithic period. But so we're pl- we're finding plenty of uh, these ceramics. There's, of course, they're made out of clay, they're fired uh, at a high enough temperature into the shape of whatever kinds of vessels and and, and so on, uh, and there are many more clay sources than there are obsidian sources, but nevertheless, we're also studying them using the same non-destructive method, and we've also gone and actually collected raw clay up and down many of the rivers that run through uh, this area that's called the Tavoliere. Uh, this particular area in southeastern italy today is major agricultural fields i mean it's very it's uh, no hills of of any size uh lots of these rivers that run run on through there uh it's not a place for tourists uh so you probably uh, have never visited any of the towns in in, in that area uh but uh, that's also very good Mm -hmm. uh for us archaeologists because it means they haven't gone and destroyed the land right what is underneath with lots of uh, buildings and and so on mm-hmm. and we actually investigated particular we identified where certain archaeological sites were because of aerial photography. Uh, This actually started out in the times of World War II for other purposes where they were going out and doing all of this photography. But what you find just from regular uh, visual uh, light, but also uh, these days using uh, near-infrared and things like that, you can see patterns that show up on the surface that are actually underground. Uh And so we've then gone using these aerial photographs to specific Places and walked along on the surface after they'd done their plowing uh, of, uh, you know, whatever uh, wheat and so on they're growing. And, of course, plowing brings loose materials right up to the surface. So we've gone and collected, again, lots and lots of pieces of broken pottery as well as stone tools and the kinds of things, you know, that do uh, stay preserved for such a long time.
1: So when you, so after you guys have taken the, the photo, you say you kind of walk the, the plowed fields, that's, um, that's surveying, correct?
2: Uh, absolutely. Surveying okay. is when you're not doing the excavations. Right. Uh, we actually didn't do, uh, of course, we aren't the ones who did the photography back in the 1940s and <laughs> 50s, right. uh, but we have gone uh, and you, uh, done some specific aerial photography using a drone uh, with the infra- near-infrared over a very small area after we had narrowed down some of the places that we had identified. It was about 25 different archaeological sites that mm-hmm. we uh, had gone and just done basic surface surveying. Uh, but we narrowed things down then to two sites uh, that we hope to do actual excavation in the future. So we did this de- detailed aerial photography with the near-infrared, and we also used right-on-the-ground uh, remote sensing Uh, specifically gradiometry, uh, which gives us really a very good picture of what's beneath the surface without disturbing it in any way.
0: Dr. Teichaud, I have a question regarding the non-destructive analysis. So I'm curious how long you've had or how long we've had access to that type of technology and then what the benefit of that is.
2: Uh, X-ray fluorescence uh, has been around uh, for, I don't know, probably 60 or 70 years or more. Uh, but the development of battery-operated handheld devices is only about 10 Uh, 10 or 12 uh, years old. So that's really changing things for archaeology where we go to where the archaeological sites and museums are not going and getting samples which in itself may be destructive if you're taking a piece from a larger object and bring that back to your laboratory.
1: Mm. So what um, what kind of questions can you address using this technique or do
2: you in your research? in the case of the obsidian we are able by looking at the trace element composition of the obsidian to identify exactly where each obsidian artifact came from Mm -hmm. Uh, and in this particular area of southeastern Italy we found most of the obsidian coming from that island of Lipari north of Sicily but also from another island Palmarola uh, which is west of Naples uh, in uh, uh, the Tyrrhenian Sea and uh, even a few pieces coming from the large island of Sardinia, which is quite far uh, away to the west. Pottery, as I said, there's many more clay sources, so we can't distinguish uh, one that's you know every uh, kilometer or two up and down every single river, mm-hmm. but we are able to distinguish the specific rivers uh, that were being used right there in the Tavoliere, and what we basically found is that all of the ceramics are made within the tavalieri but that doesn't mean within uh, a uh, you know one day's walking distance or something Mm -hmm. uh, but could be some uh, you know uh, taken some time and is probably demonstrating or indicating the movement of people on a regular basis to go and exchange materials not somebody who decides well I want to get some clay from a source 50 kilometers away and bring that back to make some pottery Mm -hmm. when there's local sources uh, available as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's always specialized kinds of materials or products uh, that are being produced in other communities and then people go and meet in intermediate places uh, where they go and exchange. So um, kind of going, going off of that,
1: one of the things that you're looking at when you, um, or you said that you're looking at when you're collecting these materials is, is the chronology of, of these materials. Um, so how have you used, um, so how have you identified the, the chronology when you're finding these materials, and then how do you use that, that data to support um, your, your argument in your research that's, uh, that d- domesticated plants and animals from these year-round settlements, um, you say, came across the Adriatic Sea um, around
2: uh, CA 8,000 years ago? That's right. Beginning about 8,000 years ago is when agriculture and all these domesticated plants and animals arrived in the Tavoliere area of southeastern Italy mm-hmm. uh, because we find some obsidian coming from Lipari to the southwest of the Tavoliere all the way across the Adriatic in Croatia. We clearly know that people were, tra- were traveling right across the water uh... uh, from the west side Mm -hmm. and because of the exchange networks most likely bring things back like the domesticated plants and animals uh... not our work but others have gone and studied the dna uh, on these domesticated animals, mostly modern ones in that area uh, rather than ancient DNA samples, uh, but that uh, clearly support the idea uh, that there was this transport straight across the Adriatic, not going all the way up to Slovenia and the northernmost part and then back down uh, along the coastline or something mm-hmm. uh, like that. As for the time period, mm-hmm. uh, here's, here comes the pottery uh, uh, because they were frequently had certain designs or decorations or kinds of paint that was put on there so that we can definitely talk about certain kinds that we put into the early Neolithic, the middle Neolithic, the later Neolithic, uh, uh, you know, over uh, the several thousand years that we're talking about.
1: Mm. So I think that's a good time for us to um, stop and take a quick music break, and then we'll be back to talk to Dr. Tycott.
0: Hey, bulls! You're listening to Anthro Alert here on Bulls Radio. Beautiful day in Tampa today. We're discussing the some of the archaeological methods involved in um, you know research in, uh, in Europe, Western Europe, Italy. Uh, specifically, so far we've talked about analysis of obsidian and the sources, and uh, looking at non-destructive analysis techniques to preserve preserve these materials for future study. Uh, looking at pottery and, and uh, you know a good discussion of the topic so far uh, let's let's ask next dr. Tycott if, if you just help us understand more about the bigger picture of, of why this type of research is important
2: sure uh, everybody wants to know about their own past and so here we are uh, in southern Italy with Plenty of people living there today whose ancestors are the ones uh, that we're researching uh, going back hundreds and thousands of years ago. And once agriculture arrived in Western Europe, their lifestyle was very much the same. Yes, of course, we've got electricity and cell phones and everything else uh, in the last century uh, or, or less, uh, but we all eat the exact same food. Uh, that was uh, developed then, uh, the wheat, the barley, the uh, sheep, goat, cattle, pig, the nice milk and different kinds of cheeses and, and, and so on. Uh, and so yes, they're out there using combines and again, you know, modern kinds of technology for the quantity uh, and how much labor is involved. Uh, but oh yes, these people, they still wanna know what was going on back then. And it is good uh, for us, potentially for the future, as well to have a good understanding because we have to deal with things like climate change and there definitely was that over the last several thousand years right there in south uh, southeastern uh, Italy the amount of rainfall uh, and the increased need then for irrigation to be able to produce the same kinds of things and we see this in the archaeological record with the movement of people uh, and abandoning places where there simply uh, wasn't enough water anymore
1: So have you found any other effects of of climate change as far as trying to uh, carry out your research, um, you know, year to year?
2: Uh, I don't – let's say certainly the uh, weather varies from summer to summer when we're there. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, But hard to say, uh, you know, that, oh, yes, uh, that I've noticed – I have not noticed global warming just within a few (laughs) years. That's uh, scientifically not – Right, right, right. uh, Not appropriate. Mm.
1: So going going back to the relevance of of this research, um, how how have you noticed the the people um, within the communities in the areas that you're working in southeastern Italy? How do they view this type of work and you know the archaeological research of you know studying their you know their past and and their ancestors?
2: There's definitely a lot of people. uh, I mean, we go and we give public presentations, as well as more formal academic ones uh, there in Italy, as well as uh, many here in the U.S. and and, and other places, too. Uh, uh, But lots of people who just come to these public talks wanting to know what was their past like. Uh, and one of the most interesting things is that we've gone not doing any kind of uh, formal uh, survey, uh, not survey, but uh, you know, in, uh, talking with people uh, like cultural anthropologists do, you know, interviews and things. Uh, but we walk along their uh, fields uh, and and talk to the person who's uh, going and doing whatever, and uh, he has or she doesn't have any clue, really, of what's underground because there is no architecture above. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many of them are totally surprised when they say, oh, yes, where you've done your plowing, uh, right beneath here uh, was uh, a a, a village where they had made a ditch uh, several hectares in diameter, uh, er erected several huts made out of wood and thatch, which, of course, are long gone, uh, and were doing their plowing and and, and so on. Um, And so, yeah, they're very interested in, in knowing about that.
1: Huh. Yeah, I guess uh, everybody's interested in, or most people are interested in their past. But uh, I want to steer the conversation back to um, you're talking about. Uh, examining diet and, and origins, so specifically you used um, the technique of isotopic analysis to look at origins a, a, of food and diet and, and dietary practices. Can you explain a little bit more about what isotopic analysis is and, and how you can use that to look at um, the effects of diet and in, in skeletal remains?
2: Yes. I mentioned before doing elemental analysis, the composition of materials, in particular trace elements that tell us where. Things come from because they serve as a fingerprint. Uh, in your body, everything that you consume becomes parts of the tissues, whether it's in your skin or flesh, uh, but it ends up, of course, in the bones and in the teeth. And that's what archaeologists typically have preserved in most cases are only the bones and the teeth. And by looking at the major elements that these are made out of the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen, that are in there, and also some strontium and, and, and other elements too. Uh, but So this actually represents the food that you were eating and in the case of the bones, the composition of the bones represents your average diet over the last decade or more of life. Whereas for the teeth, you know that if you chip a tooth it does not grow back. So this is very, very useful because depending on which tooth we go and analyze, it represents when that tooth formed, so whether you were a one-year-old or four years old or you were an early teenager and your wisdom tooth was now growing. Uh, In particular, looking at the young youngest teeth when you're really a little child and comparing that with where you were now buried and what you were eating as an adult is whether or not your diet and all changed. And one of the things that we know in the past, and this is very true uh, today, certainly here in the Americas, is you have plenty of people uh, who move. Uh, It can be for jobs, and that's one of the big reasons that people moved in antiquity as well. Moving to new farmland, there's more opportunities for work, more land uh, to become your family's property and and, and so on. So looking at the teeth and finding individuals, uh, the specific individuals who move from one place in the course of their life. The other thing is we can also identify specific kinds of food that were being consumed. In particular we can tell if they were eating any kind of saltwater fish that is out of the Adriatic or other parts of the Mediterranean. Uh, We can identify if they're eating freshwater fish up and down the many rivers. Uh, And we can distinguish a couple of different kinds of domesticated plants uh, and we can tell trophic levels. That is whether people are eating the plants or they're eating the animal that ate those same plants. Mm -hmm. And that's very important because meat, of course, you have to kill the animal, Mm -hmm. uh, and many more people have access to the plants, fewer, frequently because of the cost, money, your status in the society, and so on, may not have had as much meat in the diet as you would have liked. And, of course, if you're not near the coast uh, or a river, uh, then the fish would have to be coming from, uh, you know, some kind of distance.
1: So how are you How are you um, connecting the elements that you can find um, during your elemental analysis and connecting that to um, the specific types of food that made up their diet?
2: Is that how you're connecting them, or uh, is there different ways to figure that out? Uh, that's definitely one aspect of this. Uh, for example, uh, we know that the— Obsidian and some other materials are definitely being transported over water. There are no boats of any kind preserved from this early period in time. The wood has not lasted. Uh, or or anything like that Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, but we know that they were substantial enough in size that they were able to bring those uh, larger animals uh, the sheep, goat and and cattle Uh, we know that the obsidian uh, was uh, going at least eastward across the Adriatic into Croatia and elsewhere Uh, and so simply knowing that they obviously had the capability of being out in a boat doing whatever kind of fishing they could have used nets, uh, as well as other kinds of things. Uh, What's surprising is that all, and I really mean all of the isotopic analyses that we have done, show that fish and seafood were negligible parts of their diet. Hmm. Once they had agriculture, and in their backyard, so to speak, uh, a sheep and a cow regularly producing milk and cheese, uh, that uh, the seafood just was not uh, something uh, that they depended on in any way. Now, is that revelation um, contrary to what had been thought previously? Well, certainly today. Anybody who goes to visit Italy or other parts of Mediterranean Europe, uh, you go and you have all kinds of seafood uh, for dinner and other meals. Uh, And so in that sense, it it really is a surprise. Why wasn't it the same, especially for people who lived near the coast where they had the technology to go and be collecting fish and shellfish? Uh, uh, So this brings up more of an economic perspective, I think, uh, than anything that had to do with the technological ability uh, to get the fish. And we should say is that in earlier times, before they had the agriculture, when they're what we call hunter-gatherers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that not only were they going after the deer and other wild animals, but they were having definitely more fish and and other seafood in their diet then. But that changed with the agricultural revolution. So I... Uh-
1: I'm interested, can you tell uh, maybe from bones that you found um, pre-agriculture to bones that you find post-agriculture, can you find any difference in maybe the composition of the bones or maybe something that would indicate um, comparison into in the health of the, of the
2: populations? Yes. Uh, health uh, is definitely a very important thing. From skeletal remains, we can estimate the age of death of the individual, uh, uh, but we can't always determine the cause uh, of death. Uh, There were some cases of competition and, uh, you know, a few examples where a person was actually killed uh, for some particular reason. Uh, There's other cases where we definitely identify accidental things, broken bones uh, that have not gone and healed. Uh, that kind of thing, Um, uh, but uh, uh, we we are limited in in, in that sense. Uh, We also study particularly the teeth, and easy to identify which teeth were lost when the person was alive, uh, and uh, there's growth to close up the holes and all there, Uh, uh, but also the wear pattern, how much of your enamel is lost because of what it is that they were chewing away, Mm -hmm. and The wonderful thing, and this is true for the isotopic analysis as as well as any kind of skeletal study, is we're looking at individuals. Mm -hmm. And by looking at a large enough individuals, we can then make comparisons between men and women, adults and children, between one time period and another, between one archaeological site and another contemporary archaeological site to see what kind of consistency and variation there was in people's lives.
1: I think we're going to uh, pause the conversation right here again. We're going to have, uh, Renee has a message from our sponsors, and we're going to transition it into a short music break.
0: Hey, Bulls, you're listening to Anthro Alert here at the 3 o'clock hour every Friday on USF Bulls Radio. You can hear us on WSF 89.7. HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus, and streaming worldwide every day at tunein.com and on the TuneIn Radio app. Uh, you can find more information about our radio show, such as show notes, links to the podcast, links to the YouTube channel, all on anthroAlert.com. That's yeah, an easy way to connect with us. You know, find us on Twitter, Facebook, all those other lovely places. Now, we, we've been speaking for this hour with Dr. Robert Tycott and just before the break, Dr. Tycott was explaining to us all of the fascinating things that you can learn just by studying uh, teeth, uh, dentition, and d- dental enamel, um, you know, fi- getting isotopic analysis, elemental analysis, and I, I was basically astonished to hear all the number of insights that we can gain. So, so really, my next question is, you know, having having taught anthropology and archaeology for for many years, is that a common uh, is that a common surprise that people have or that students have when they realize just all of the information that you can get just from teeth?
2: Absolutely. One of the things just is how much new technology has been developed uh... in you know the last decade or two how much that facilitates the kinds of research studies that archaeologists and anthropologists are interested in Uh, also we have to be practical and how destructive are these analytical methods to the archaeological materials and how much does it cost uh... to do this in the past and i'm by the past here going back 30 or more years Mm -hmm. uh... we were much more limited in how many samples we could go and analyze uh... and that limits what we can do in terms of interpretation uh... but being able to do these kinds of isotopic analyses at modest costs on very small kinds of samples uh... has really facilitated producing lots and lots of data uh, many other scholars besides myself are doing these things these days uh, in Italy as well as many other countries and parts around uh uh, uh, the world. I just have to put in and as an aside here, right here in Florida, we do this kind of study as well, comparing pre uh, Columbian uh, residents living on the Gulf side, living inland, living on the Atlantic side, comparing uh, how important fish and other things were in their diet, when maize, which was an important domesticated crop, was first introduced uh, and replaced a lot of these other foods, kind of like what I've been talking about right there in the Mediterranean.
1: And so what what kind of things um, have you been finding uh, studying those populations in, in Florida?
2: Uh, well, uh, in retrospect, it's not a surprise, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but on the Gulf side, where the water, was, water is much shallower, they were fishing probably 12 months out of the year. Anybody could go and put their nets in the shallow water, uh, even in big storms. Uh, it's nothing like what would happen on the Atlantic side, where the water gets deep much more quickly. And, yes, people on the Atlantic side, they ate plenty of fish, too, just not as much as on the Gulf side. Uh, And no surprise, uh, at first that inland people were not eating as much uh, saltwater fish because of the distance involved, uh, but it does tell us something that we were surprised with is they're basically not mobile. That is when you talk about hunter-gatherers in general, they change their location by significant distances due to seasonal variation and what kinds of foods and things would be available. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really seems that earlier in time than, than we had previously thought they really were settled in one location for most of the year and the inland people were just not eating fish because it didn't exist there. Freshwater fish, that's something else. So so why would that have been the case where um, they were settled earlier than uh, we had thought? Uh, Well, in anthropological archaeology, we generally have this idea that hunter-gatherers are all mobile uh, and that you continue to be that way uh, until you have agriculture. But there are some exceptions uh, to that. The um, uh, Calusa, uh, Calusa Indians in southwestern Florida are an example where they had so much availability of natural, that is wild, food resources, uh, that they're known to have developed a very complex society where there's different status uh, uh, things and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but that was an exception to what uh, was thought was going on uh, in most of peninsular Florida. Um. Hmm. So
1: moving, moving into the, the conclusion of our show this week, we like to um bring it in a little a little bit more personally like uh people's uh journeys um you know being in grad school or or during their careers and we talk about you know how people got into anthropology or archaeology and 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 try to make it relatable for our listeners and so i I just wanted to ask you um what originally sparked your interest in be in becoming an archaeologist and um you know being
2: in anthropology and the discipline well, you're talking about a lot of decades ago now. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I remember very, very well that when I started college, I knew nothing about archaeology. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was almost uh, pre. Uh, uh... harrison ford times oh, okay. uh, uh... so uh... not that uh, that has anything to do with real archaeology but, but uh, that's a common reference on our show absolutely uh... uh but uh, i simply had really i mean i was very interested in ancient history i took a ninth grade class uh... in that so i mean i knew about uh, egyptian pyramids and stonehenge and you know some of these famous kinds of things but it was only in college uh, where you go and you take your first couple of years uh, uh, courses in many different departments and so on uh, mm-hmm. and uh, uh... i mean i i kind of joke and uh, about this but the archaeology classes were in the afternoon whereas the biology and the chemistry classes were early in the morning uh... and uh... Uh, I can never say no to a lot of things, so I ended up doing a double major in chemistry and in archaeology. And so that really then developed over, you know, my whole career is applying uh, scientific methods to archaeological research questions.
1: So was graduate school something that you um, had always planned on, or was it just— the logical next
2: step after you graduated? Uh, It was the logical next step uh, after I finished being an undergraduate. I actually went right away into a combined bachelor's master's degree program where I could finish my last couple of undergraduate courses while also taking graduate courses Uh, and then I went on for a PhD in anthropology after that.
1: Mm. And so you've you've, uh, spent a significant amount of time in archaeology and in anthropology and in the discipline and as it's transitioned and and changed over over the years so what what kind of of changes within the field of anthropology or archaeology have have really stuck out to you since since you've um, been in the field Uh,
2: bringing in the scientific methods you cannot do modern archaeology just by going and doing an excavation, recording and cataloging the finds, and putting nice objects on display. Uh, we have specialists in many, many different subfields, uh, which incorporate some kind of scientific approach, statistical analysis of your assemblage of uh, of things. Uh, you know, and where this is really important is when you're back in high school if you are really interested in doing something about archaeology don't stop taking your math and science classes because you have to at least understand what those can contribute to your your own archaeological research mm-hmm. even if you're not the specialist involved uh, in doing the scientific analyses
1: that's a really good point we we also try to have some advice for students so that i I appreciate that you said that, and you know, not not stopping your your math and science courses. And I would add to that, even if you don't want to do archaeology, but you want to just do another discipline or subdiscipline in anthropology, there's there's always benefits to having at least that baseline knowledge in the math and sciences. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, Doctor Doctor um So
0: you've been teaching anthropology. What what? Are, what is one of your favorite
2: courses to teach or or subjects to teach? Well, what immediately comes to my mind uh, is my course that I developed called Fantastic Archaeology. And now, while I obviously find archaeology fantastic to do, this is where it is too fantastic, meaning fraudulent and incorrect appropriate claims being made that are not actually supported by archaeological or of, uh, other kinds of evidence. Would you huh. like an example? Oh, please? Yeah. Yeah. yes. Okay, so Many of these are related to religious claims, and I'm not going to uh, uh, get into any one in particular, uh, but instead the claim of Atlantis, uh, which is supposed to be based on uh, Greek uh, historical writing uh, things, uh, and many claims made for where Atlantis actually was uh, when uh, the person who wrote about it originally did not claim to be for it to even have existed, uh, uh, but uh, uh, there are people who go and claim, oh, that I found something here on the island of Crete. Uh, or in Sardinia, or uh, on in Malta, or Spain, or right over here in the Bahamas uh, and other things. Uh, and there just is no actual archaeological evidence that has been found that supports any of these claims. But they keep on going and going in the news uh, again and again. And this does take away uh, a time and money of professionals uh, who are involved in this. Um, uh, And uh, anyway, these things continue despite the lack of evidence. Um, And so what I emphasize in this course is to use critical thinking. Just to go and ask, well, where's the beef?
0: (laughs) That that sounds like a very enjoyable course. For undergraduates? Uh, Yes, it is.
1: I might have to go back to school. (laughs) (laughs) So I would ask a question, um, you know, based off of what you're saying where, you know, these claims are being made and it's taking money away from, you know, more, um, I guess, legitimate or, you know, actual archaeologists, you know, it's taking money away from their research. So going off of that, how do you as a scientific archaeologist sort of not not battle the research going on in general, but more of just the the claims that they're making and more of, I guess, the the pseudoscience?
2: Well, What I think is by teaching more and more students uh, about the importance of critical thinking, Mm -hmm. the first thing I say on on, on the first day of class, I might have, you know, my own thoughts, uh, things that I say in my relatively loud voice. (laughs) You're not supposed to go and just take my word for it Mm -hmm. and not just for archaeology. But to use this in many other aspects of your life, whether it's how you invest your money, or who you vote for, or anything else, uh, is to simply use that critical thinking in making decisions.
1: Uh, so, that's just a good life skill to have in general. Like you like you said, you can apply that to you know any any aspect of your life. So we're winding down the show this week. We're running out of time. We're having a great conversation, but. They put a time limit on it, so we have to abide by it. Um, so, I, uh, Dr. Tycott, at the end of the show, we just like to give the opportunity to our, de- our guests to uh, have any closing remarks, any last words, any um, you know, takeaways that they would like our, our listeners to have. So, um,
2: you know, do you have any final final comments? Um, well, uh, I hope that you've learned a little bit about archaeology uh, from my presentation here and uh, just to keep that in mind because it often is not on TV and other kinds of things out there uh, that you really learn about what modern archaeology is and how it is useful uh, for modern people uh, and not just being on in the movies and uh, general things.
0: Uh, speaking of TV and, and uh, media, do, do you have a favorite portrayal of archaeology?
1: Um, not in particular. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's, uh, fair. that's fair. So on that note. Um, yeah, so like Renee said earlier uh, in the show, if you'd like to read a summary of what we discussed today on the radio, um, you can find all the information, whether written down or um, recorded as a podcast, on anthroalert.com. You can also find a list of the music that we played. So if you enjoyed the music and want to see see the artists and the name of those songs, you can find that on anthroalert.com, and we will see you guys next week.